I never really know how to start these things. Is it, should I start it with a, hello everybody, good morning, like a tour, like a typical radio show, or should I start by like cracking a joke, or should I start it like this, just casually, saying I have no idea what I'm doing, and you know, just keep going as it is. I think that's how we're going to start this show today. We're just going to talk, hey, I have no idea what I'm doing, we're just going to talk about sports. How about that? Let's talk about sports. This is the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. Hello, everybody. I'm James Timberlake. I guess it's kind of a mix of both there. Uh, I'm your host, James Timberlake. We're going to talk about some weekend uh, storylines over the that happened over the past weekend, and um, mainly get a recap of some uh, you know NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, couple uh, MLB storylines that came out over the weekend as well. Um, some unfortunate news for the Mets. If you're a Mets fan, sorry, oh Mets, uh, sorry Mets fans. Um, you know. It sucks to be a it sucks to be a Mets player right now or a Mets fan, and then uh, if you're a Mets pitcher, you're basically you're basically you know it's a cursed position to be in. We'll get into that a little bit, but uh, first things first. You know, last I think it was Thursday, um, we were getting into the weekend, and I was getting a little bit nervous in terms of uh, terms of storylines. I was like, there hasn't been a lot that's happened so far this past week where I can actually make a podcast out of it and talk about it, and then. The cream of the crop happens. We get the beautiful morphing of uh, of two older aged men yelling at each other about college football and NIL deals. Alabama coach Nick Saban, 70-year-old, talking and getting angry at Jimbo Fisher, who is 56 years old. Um, so if you don't know, I'll kind of recap it here. Um, Nick Saban, coach at Alabama, revered, probably the greatest head coach of all time in the history of college football. Um, basically said to Jimbo Fisher, uh, the head coach at Texas A&M, Texas A&M, for those that don't know, basically pulled the greatest recruiting class of all time, depending on who you ask, um, this past recruiting session. So the 2022 class of for Texas A&M is one of the greatest recruiting classes of all time, easily number one in the national rankings this past year. And Nick Saban basically said, quote, you know, the at not quote, this is paraphrasing the Aggies basically straight up just bought their number one recruiting class with NIL NIL deals. And then, you know, Fisher, Jimbo Fisher could have just swept that under the rug. Hey, you know, nah, we didn't really do it. I mean, I, you know, it's NIL. It's the way of the world. Now that sort of thing kind of brushed it all off, but no, he did not do that. Fisher in his press conference basically said, um, their success is in any way connected to NIL, which come on. I mean, you can make all the lies you want. Of course, it's part of NIL. Of course, that's part of the deal. You can add everything else to it, of course, but I mean, that's the way of the world right now. But in that same news conference, he didn't just, you know, basically say, no, we didn't do all that with just NIL. We, we've got great academics here. Here, I'll do my Jimbo Fisher. We've got great academics here and we've got great facilities, okay? We are more than just NIL deals and we're going to be a good team without it. That's a pretty good Jimbo Fisher, actually. I'm actually proud of myself for that. He basically said, um, he basically went scorched earth. He called Saban despicable. He called him a narcissist who can't handle losing recruits. Uh, he even suggested that Saban has been cheating for years and uh, encouraged reporters to, quote, go dig into his past. Uh, Fisher, he's a fellow West Virginian who worked under Saban at LSU from 2000 to 2006 and said Saban reached out to him on Thursday after this all happened. And uh, he didn't take the call. He didn't let the call. He ghosted he ghosted the greatest coach of all time in Nick Saban and then Fisher afterwards said, quote, we're done. Oh, it's beautiful. It's just two 
you know, older gentlemen yelling at clouds and getting angry at each other. There's nothing like it. It's truly a beautiful moment. If you haven't seen the press conferences, go watch them because they are hilarious. Um, They're good fun. Nick Saban. I don't know what he's complaining about, really, other than the fact that he's lost recruits. I understand that. But if you're Nick Saban, who cares? You have literally the best program in the country, period. No questions asked. The most money in the country, period. No questions asked. He makes the most money as a head coach, as a college football head coach, period. No questions asked. His salary is basically a sliding scale, depending on who the next highest paid coach is. Alabama has basically agreed to pay him the highest paid coach, no matter what the next. So if, you know, Jimbo Fisher, just for example, signs a salary, a uh, contract that is higher than his, higher than uh, Nick Saban's, Nick Saban, as part of his contract, is basically allowed to go up in salary to top Jimbo Fisher. It's incredible. He's signed a multi-year deal. He's seven years old. He is getting up there in age, so retirement is probably not too far away, too far away for Nick Saban. But as for now, the guy's making unbelievable amounts of money, and so is that, and so is that program. And a lot, you know, I'm not putting anything against Nick Saban. He is, like I said, the greatest college football coach we have ever seen. Period. Cut and dry. No question about it. He has created a dynasty there that is will more than likely be unmatched by any other that'll come after him, at least for the, you know, ridiculous foreseeable future. Um, so, you know, I, I got nothing against um, Nick Saban, but just the way that he's approaching this. And again, Jimbo Fisher is kind of just saying the quiet stuff there by saying, you know, um, they've been che- they've been cheating for years, you know, quote, dig into his past. It's not like. And I'm not accusing Fisher of doing it, but this has just been the way of the the game forever. They were NIL just brought the stuff to legal uh, the the legal legalization of things that they have been doing for years. I mean, if you are really thinking that um, for the past few years before NIL, uh, we were forced to pretend that a lot of the top players were going to certain schools because of tradition or locker room waterfalls, you know, all the 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 cool the cool, um, the facilities that they have, all that jazz or academics. I mean, if you're thinking academics, come on. Um, they're made for, let's just say more capitalistic reasons. Even if money wasn't the primary motivation in their recruitment, boosters always had ways to ensure that it wasn't the reason their, their school would lose a player in those situations. Let's put it that way. Money has always been shifting hands in these situations, whether it be, Hey, I'll buy your lunch for the next six months if you come play uh, school at the University of Alabama or University of Texas A&M, and then just sleep, sweep it under the radar so nobody knows. Of course, that's been going on. Anybody that doesn't think that's going on has lost their mind or is so far behind in the way that college sports has done things that they're not. They see NIL and they lose their minds. This is the way it has been going on forever. This part is undoubtedly great theater. It's it's fun to watch. And media days are coming up at the end of May and uh, or later. I think it's later in June for the SEC. And then um, they have um, uh, um, spring meetings are coming up in the in towards the end of June. And then I think they have um, I don't remember what they call it, but it happens in July. It's basically, you know, the teams all get together in one place. Media days, I think, is what they call it. That's in July. So that's coming up. That'll be fun. That'll also be really good theater. But it's also a symptom of how poorly college sports has really grappled with its new reality. College football, and the and not necessarily college football, but the NCAA in itself, the NCAA has done such a bad job at managing this situation just from an outside perspective. They don't really have a lot that they can do 
what with what they have right now with the plays that they have right now. But my God, it has been truly a an auction. I mean, you can really go to any of these top recruits, ask them the reason that they're going to where they're going, and I guarantee a lot of them will just say money because, of course, that's why they're going. Why wouldn't they not take that deal? We're going to offer you the most amount of money to do what you are very good at. And, and for a lot of these guys, uh, these football players, I mean, any of these play, any of these players in any game, um, they're not coming from prestigious backgrounds you know they they're not built they're not born or given uh you know a great a, a great upbringing they're not born with a silver spoon in their mouth nothing like that a lot of these guys are coming from difficult situations and they're using that their leverage of their ability to make more money to help whoever they have that they need to help out there's nothing wrong with that the last i checked that's how businesses have done things for hundreds of years and the fact that college football and just the NCAA got away with what they've been doing for, you know, God knows how long, the last 60 to 70 years um, in football and basketball and all that sort of thing was crazy to anybody that thinks this is a bad, you know, the NIL idea is a bad thing is, is incredibly wrong. You, if you believe that the NIL NIL part of college sports is bad, then you are inherently looking down at the athlete as a person, as a lower person than what they are. Period. That is the way you are looking at it. If you look at it that way, these guys they make the money for the programs, and they deserve to make all the money, at least a portion of what is going into these Alabamas and Texas A and M's. And I just thought this was a great way to kind of um, highlight the uh, you know anger that these. I mean, the coaches really Nick Saban, you know, whatever he. I don't think he's necessarily against nil. He's actually been one of the more uh, stronger proponents proponents to towards NIL getting these players paid. Um, but then to be angry at the fact that somebody did it better than them is kind of laughable. If Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher went out and bought all these players, who cares? That is part of the game now at this point with no regulation in play for NIL or anything like that. As of it's, as it stands right now with the NCAA, not really being able to step in and, you know, put their foot in the door and say, Hey, we got to kind of manage this. Then why wouldn't you go out and just with the money that Texas A&M and all these SEC schools, Texas A&M, Alabama, that they have, why would you not go out and just try to put the biggest price on these players to bring them to your school? That is the entire point of this. Now for Nick Saban to be yelling at, or be angry at Texas for at Jimbo Fisher for doing the job that is now what it, the, the job listing that is supposed to be to be mad at Jimbo Fisher for what he's doing is laughable, especially from a guy like Nick Saban, who, according to Jimbo Fisher also, has been doing this for years. Who cares? I mean, to be mad that somebody is now doing it better than you and legally is just laughable. It's just so, it's just so old man yells at cloud type stuff. You know, Nick, Mr. Coach Saban, excuse me, get over it. Okay. You're going to be fine. The Alabama team is not going to be bad, you know, and now, circle the date for their matchup on the on the calendar um october 8th is when they met or when they meet um the aggies will visit tuscaloosa to take on uh the crimson tide and that will be one i mean let's so i'm excited to see the post-game handshake if you will at the end of that one and um i'm i'm, I'm putting my money down if we were gonna if we were gonna make bets on DraftKings or FanDuel or something if we saw if we had a time limit for the handshake i'm gonna put under two seconds I think they go, that's them shaking hands. Boop, one Mississippi, done. 
walk out. Not a pat on the back or nothing like that. Pat on the back's a tricky call, though. Pat on the back is more like a kind of a... Sometimes you can kind of do it to kind of fake that you're all good with somebody. So you shake hands, pat on the back, and then you move on with your day. But sometimes, you know, it can kind of be faked. I mean, that's how... Boop, pat on the back. Hey, we're all good, man. And then leave. But you're not really good, you know? And I think that's what's going to happen here. I think we get a one-second shake with Jimbo and uh, Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban and a pat on the back by one of them and then gone. Then jet out of there. It could be it could be less, though. It could just be the one-second handshake and then walk. It really could be like that. And that's that that would be truly hilarious now that, you know, this this game is being circled on everybody's calendars. If that's what it just ended up being, just one quick handshake, handshake and then gone. That would just be peak, you know? Um, yeah, media boosting. I mean, that's kind of what the media does at this point, especially for these sorts of things. Hey, we're going to circle this on our calendar and see if anything happens. Nothing is going to happen, of course. And then, you know, be like, wow, that handshake. Incredible. Are you impressed by what Jimbo Fisher or and Nick Saban did tonight? You know, that's what that's what happens on the 24 hour, 24 hour sports media. You got to kind of make a uh, make a story about everything. And that's what it kind of feels like, even though this is an interesting story, that part of it, you know, when it comes to the game day. I don't know if it's really going to matter all that much. They're going to shake hands, pat each other on the back and walk off the field. They're not going to, not going to put a ring, you know, a boxing ring in the middle of the field after the game and watch Jimbo and Nick Saban go 10 rounds, even though that would be cool. I got my money on Jimbo there. They're not going to do that. All right, moving on. I just thought that was a fun story to kind of start the day off Thursday. You know, college sports is being analyzed more than it ever has been. Thanks to the NIL and stuff like that. Um, and and just the money being exchanged in different ways. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting to kind of analyze as you go into a new football season with all the new names in different places, started with the transfer portal and now it's NIL transfer portal, basically. And if you can go into the transfer portal and get purchased by another team, pretty much then, I mean, for more money, why wouldn't you? So it's just an interesting analysis. If you want to read a good article about the Nick Saban and Jimbo Fisher um, conundrum, if you will, uh, Dan Wolken of USA Today wrote a really good article about it, kind of his uh, opinionated take on it. I got a couple of a uh, couple of lines in there um, that I kind of took. So thank you to Dan Wolken, obviously, um, and go read his uh, his written up article about it too. So thank you to Dan Wolken, USA Today. Go check that out. All right, moving on. It is we are in the middle of uh, playoffs, obviously basketball playoffs, NHL playoffs, and uh, basketball playoffs are kind of heating up. There has been a there's been one good series and one bad series, I would say. I mean, bad, you know, put in quotation marks, depending on which team you're on. Um, the Warriors are dominating their series against the Mavericks. Uh, they beat the Mavericks in game four, um, 109 to 100. Excuse me. I think it was uh, game three, not game four. Game three, uh, where they beat the Warrior or they beat the Mavericks 109 to 100. Uh, they squandered a 19 point lead in game two. Mavericks, uh, excuse me, the Mavericks. Uh, squandered a 19-point lead in Game 2, and then the Mavericks dug themselves in a hole. Uh, no team in NBA history has ever climbed out of after falling 3-0 against the Warriors. Doncic becoming one of the great playoff players in NBA history, especially just these past playoffs. He dropped 40 for the second consecutive game. Curry, of course, doing what he does every single game. It feels like he had an efficient, efficient 31 points. Um, the big story that came out of the game, Andrew Wiggins, he added 27 points. Uh, and he had a disgusting poster dunk, uh, poster dunk over Luca, and it was uh, pretty, pretty amazing, pretty impressive. And now Golden State just one went away, one went away from reaching their sixth NBA Finals in just eight years. And another thing that's kind of up for analysis, I'm going to kind of be a writer here, is how 
how incredible the run for the Warriors has been over those past eight years. So again, six finals appearances in eight years in the past eight years. They lost the NBA finals in 2018-2019 to the um, Toronto Raptors. And um, in that series, Clay Thompson tore his Achilles. So he was out basically the entire next year. So 2019-2020, they were terrible. 15-50 and 50 was their record. They were awful. Um, they got a lottery pick out of it. And they took James Wiseman as their lottery pick. Their best player that season in that 2019-2020 season was Marquise Chris, which no offense to Marquise Chris, but when you're around guys like Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, who are all all stars, all NBA players, you know, not the best player to have as your top win share guy. Um, and then 2020-2021, Clay Thompson, before the season started, tears his ACL, so he's out again. And um, Steph Curry and Draymond Green kind of kind of got to kind of, you know, carry the load for that season. And it's not really enough. Steph Curry battles injuries that year. So does Draymond Green. So they go 39 and 33 that season, miss the playoffs again. And then 2021, here we are, 2022, 53, 29, and they're in the conference semifinals. And now the conference finals leading three, nothing over the Mavericks. They've won three championships since 2012 to uh, basically the last 10 years. They won the finals three times, have been to the finals Again, eight or six times, lost three times, or won three times, lost three times, or lost two times as well. It's incredible. It's incredible what they've done. They've gone five times, a chance to go six. And that team in itself, just the core three that they have, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, has been the only thing that has basically stayed the same other than Steph, uh, Steve Kerr, who has been the coach since they won their first finals back in 2014, 2015. That team, that grouping, has basically changed the game. I mean, if you if you give a basketball to a kid today, they're not going to back down in the post as their, you know, way to impress their friends or anything like that. Like, you know, a Will Chamberlain, again, another warrior, Will Chamberlain. Um, uh, you know, a Will Chamberlain-led team back in the in the 50s and 60s would do. Now it's all about the three ball. And this team basically has changed the way um Teams, when they're drafting and, and when they're evaluating players, has changed the way that teams look at those players entirely. Back in 2012, 2013, um, when uh, Mark Jackson was the coach, they were beginning to kind of find their stride when they lost in the conference semifinals. And then 2013, 2014, they're really beginning to find their stride. So again, Mark Jackson, as the head coach, they, lo- they lose in the first round. And then 2014, 2015, that Steve Curry year, they go 67 and 15 and win the NBA Finals. And then the year after that, 73-9, and nine, they break the regular season record um, for most wins in a season, winning 73 games, beating the Bulls record of 72-10. and 10. They do lose the Finals that season to Cleveland, but um, and Michael Jackson has that famous saying, doesn't matter if you don't have a ring. And that's totally true. I understand that. 73-9. and nine, Regardless, that's an incredible achievement. 73 wins, 9 losses, and an 82-game season is an unbelievable achievement, but you know, a lot of people kind of just brushed it to the side because they didn't win the ring the ring that year. They, that was the season they went a three, one over the Cavs, and the Cavs came back and won four, three in seven games. So, you know, I, I understand that a lot of people kind of look down on them because of that situation, the 73 and nine year, even though they won back to back finals, the two years after that. And even though that was with, um, uh, Kevin Durant the year after, uh, and then, you know, the, the back-to-back finals teams were both with Kevin Durant. So a lot of people look down on them for that as well. But 
I mean, this team in and of itself, just those years, the 10 years that they've been together, basically, um, or as dominant as they have been, um, I mean, they've changed the, they've changed the game. Anytime you can watch uh, somebody actively change the game before your eyes, change the fundamental idea of how we watch the game and evaluate the game. It's impressive. It's fun to watch. And I, I'm, I'm an Oklahoma City Thunder fan. I shouldn't be a fan of these guys. These guys took Kevin Durant from me. And then in 2015, or, you know, before they took Kevin Durant, Clay Thompson went off in a game six and basically changed the entire face of the NBA when Kevin Durant left and yada, yada, yada. I'm going on a rant. But I shouldn't love these guys. But you have to respect what they have done to the game of basketball. They've changed the way we've watched it. And there's only, you know, a few times where you can look back on in, on the NBA and and single out a moment where you're like, or a team, where you're like, these guys are changing the game of basketball. Magic Johnson's Lakers in the in the 70s and uh, Larry Bird's Celtics in the 70s as well. They became high-flying offenses that people hadn't seen before. Before it was, you know, throw it into the post, kind of watch the post guy work, the post guy scores, that was basketball. Then Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, more so Magic Johnson, I would say, um, came onto the scene in the 70s with the Lakers, and they create this high-flying um, offense that is run off of speed and um, being able to, you know, uh, throw up alley-oops and, and flash. You know, the, the flashy teams of the Lakers, Showtime Lakers, were created. That was a team of the 70s that changed the game and how they evaluated the game and how to score points aggressively and score more points than anybody in, in more possessions than anybody had ever seen. And then you move on to the next handing over of the, of the, of the baton, if you will, to Michael Jordan in the nineties. Um, it was always thought that you had to have a dominant big man in order to succeed in the NBA. Even with those magic Johnson teams, they had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, obviously, uh, Larry Bird, they had Kevin Harlan, um, you know, Harlan, not as good as, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, obviously, but you know, they had a dominant big man down low as well. And, um, then when you have Michael Jordan come on the scene, it changes that idea that you needed a big man to win these league or win the championship in these leagues. Then all of a sudden, Michael Jordan comes on the scene as a guard and he leads his team to the finals and wins six championships as a guard without any, you know, hugely notable big man on his team. That changes the game. You can now play the game smaller as a guard and guards can win you titles. And then you pass the baton on to, you know, I'm probably skipping over a little bit, you know, the Kobe Bryant's, the LeBron James's, they, you know, I won't say they completely changed the game the way Steph Curry and Klay Thompson have just the teams, the Warriors teams of these um, late 2010s, these mid 2010s and, you know, into the 2020s um, basically hand the baton off to the three point era. And that is what it has become three point era. And guys like guys like um, Gilbert Arenas and stuff like that. They were in, you know, even um, even guys like uh Guys like Reggie Miller and Ray Allen, they were way ahead of their time when it came to the three-point ball. And now you have guys, and, but the thing that Steph Curry does differently is they were great um, catch-and-shoot guys. Klay Thompson's a great catch-and-shoot guy as well, but Steph Curry is now being able to do it off the dribble better than anybody we've ever seen. And then it brought, that ushers in a whole new age. James Harden has also helped that age as well. Somebody that, I mean, maybe not recently, but um, in those mid-2010s, basically ushered in a new era of basketball as well, where you can just pull it off the dribble and shoot threes like it's nobody's business. And it's a whole new area you have to guard. And if you're, if you're a big man down low, instead of before the Jordan age, you have to be able to shoot threes instead of just rebound and that, and you know, rebound and play defense guys like Andre Drummond can't necessarily play on championship teams anymore is because anymore, because they don't have the versatility 
that guys like Brooke Lopez have, or you can kick it out to him and shoot a three or um, Serge Ibaka, or you can kick it out to them and shoot a three. Serge Ibaka isn't in this league anymore. If he's not able to sit in the corner as a power forward and shoot threes that are, that are kicked out to him from, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo right now, or, um, you know, somebody from the Raptors, you know, uh, Kawhi Leonard, if he's not able to set, uh, kick it out to Serge Ibaka, who's on the outside and shoot a three, that is the way the game has completely changed. And it is because of these teams, these Golden State Warriors teams in the 2010s and the early 2020s that have changed the game completely and have evolved the way we watch basketball and the way that the basketball game is played and the value of um, points um, per shot taken, if that makes sense. Uh, the three-pointer is more valuable than a mid-range jump shot. Nobody would have ever believed you if you said that to the Michael Jordan Bulls back in the 90s. Michael Jordan would have scoffed at you if you said, take more three-pointers because the mid-range is kind of a bad shot in terms of value of what you're getting per shot. Everybody would have scoffed at you. But here we are, 20, 30 years later, and we have Steph Curry just doing it off a whim, shooting you know 40 to 50% from three, and they're winning three championships and, on, and possibly on their way to a sixth finals in eight years. So. It's incredible to watch. They're a fantastic team. We don't know if they're going to get on yet or go on to the finals yet. Obviously, still another game to be played. I believe that's Tuesday night. And um, we'll see what happens. Um, but all things kind of show, everything's kind of pointing in that direction that the Warriors are going to be moving on to a sixth final, finals in eight years. Moving on, uh, the other Eastern Conference uh, finals that are going on right now. The Miami Heat are taking on the Boston Celtics. Miami Heat, last night, they fell to the Boston Celtics 102 to 82. Last night, I mean, Monday night, uh, the series is now even 2 to 2. So the Eastern Conference Finals, and I guess mainly the playoffs as a whole, have kind of run into this weird. They've been interesting. They've kind of run into this weird issue in terms, I guess maybe more the NBA has kind of run into this weird issue where none of the games have been necessarily close, I guess is what I would say over the last 17 playoffs games. And, and this is a tweet from Justin fan. Um, the margin of victory over the last 17 playoff games goes as follow 29, six, nine, 25, 25, 11, 33, 28, 13, 14, 27, nine, three, 39, 30 and 35. And the average margin of victory has been 19, Point eight points, and there's been a total of seven clutch time minutes in the last 17 uh, playoff games. So it's an interesting kind of, um, I guess, uh, overarching narrative to the playoffs, the NBA playoffs, where teams are just basically uh, one team is incredibly hot, the other teams are incredibly cold, and in the in the world of the NBA today, again going back to the three pointer. With teams shooting so many threes, those leads can get out to gargantuan margins. And that's basically what has happened for these last 17 games in the playoffs. No, the, the best game of the series, the best game of the entire playoffs was probably that first game between the Nets and the Celtics when uh, Jason Tatum hit that buzzer beater, um, the, the buzzer beater, that was, uh, the layup buzzer beater that basically won them the game. And that was basically the last time we got a really, really good game. Um, in the, in, in these playoffs. So it's an interesting kind of overarching narrative that I don't know. I mean, there's nothing that Adam silver can really do about it in the NBA, but um, I mean, none of these games have been close and that makes them less watchable, especially in the five, the last, the final five minutes of the game. Um, it's just been, 
you know, unwatchable towards the final five minutes because everybody's kind of putting their their bench players out on the on the floor and just letting the clock wind down and get ready for the next game. So we haven't really had a really good game in either of these conference finals, to be honest with you, the Eastern Conference or the Western Conference finals. The Western Conference finals have been basically a blowout the entire series. And the Eastern Conference finals have been sort of the same thing, but they're tied 2-2. So it's one team getting hot and then the other team, you know, kind of getting cold and back and forth. And then, you know, you get out to a crazy fourth quarter lead and you can just put your bench players out onto the field. So um, in game four for the Celtics, it was a defensive clampdown. They held the Heat to just 33% shooting again. Another cold day for the Heat, a Miami cold, if you will. And they got out-rebounded by Miami, uh, 62-39, a glass-cleaning clinic. Uh, Jason Tatum had a game-high 31 points to go along with eight rebounds and five assists. While none of the Miami starters scored in double-digit figures, the Heat starting five combined for just 18 total points. Total points, and we're heading back to Miami with the Eastern Conference Finals all tied at 2-2. So we'll see what happens there. I hope it goes Game 7. Maybe Game 7 will be close. Maybe even Game 5 or 6 will be close, too. Um, but if it goes 7, it'll at least make up for the fact that these have all been blowouts. 7, you know, Game seven's always pretty fun, regardless. Um, Moving on to the NHL, we had a sweep happen on Monday. Uh, the Lightning, they shut out the Panthers in game four, two to nothing to complete a sweep. Um, the Bolts completed the sweep against the Panthers on Monday night with a game-winning goal by Patrick Maroon in the third period uh, before Andre Palat uh, fired an empty netter. Goaltender Andre Vasilevsky recorded 49 sa- saves in the closeout, shut, uh, the closeout shutout performance. And the Lightning are now winners of six straight postseason games and are headed back to the Eastern Conference Finals for the third straight season. Tampa Bay Lightning, underrated hockey town from what I understand. I guess, you know, the Rays are there, the Tampa Bay Rays, their their baseball team. But I guess the Lightning are kind of the fan favorite in, and, you know, of course they are. They've won two straight championships, two straight Stanley Cups. So it's not incredible. It's not, you know, incredibly out of left field to think that they're the more favorited team. But Interesting, you know, Florida, you don't you don't really think of hockey, but I guess according to a couple of people I've, I've listened to, um, Lightning, uh, the Tampa Bay is more or less a hockey town in the state of Florida and, ta- and the Florida Panthers. They cannot seem and they won their first playoff series and I think it was 20 years in the first round of the playoffs and then they lose to the Lightning again. The Lightning have been their crypto night when it comes to the playoffs. They have never beaten the Tampa Bay Lightning in uh, in the playoffs to get past the Tampa Bay Lightning is probably their next step for the Florida Panthers. This Panthers team was the uh, arguably the best team in the league um, during the regular season in the NHL, and then the Lightning come around and it's a complete sweep. It's incredible what happens to this Tampa Bay or what happens to the Florida Plan- Florida Panthers when the Tampa Bay Lightning come around. Um, it's just kind of a yeah. It's not, I don't want to say they get scared, but it's like their their uh, plan or their plan of attack kind of just gets muddled. And of course, you know, Vasilevsky, one of the best goalkeepers in goaltenders in the, uh, in the game of hockey right now. But regardless, it's incredible what happens to the Panthers. They kind of just become a shell of themselves whenever they play the lightning and the lightning moving on to another Eastern conference finals for the third straight season. So congrats to them um, out West. The avalanche rolled the blues behind Nazim Kadri's, excuse me, Nazim Kadri's hat trick. And they take a three, one series lead. So the Colorado avalanche local team, Taking a three-one series league, looking to make a uh, make it back to the Western Conference Finals, and they will take on either the uh, Flames or the Oilers um, out in uh, up in Canada, battle for Alberta up there in Canada right now. 
and uh, Edmonton leads that one two to one. And they have game four on Tuesday night, as well as the Hurricanes and the Rangers uh, in the Eastern Conference. They have game four as well, and Carolina leads that one two to one as well. So we'll see what happens in the NHL. But um, whatever happens, Tampa Bay Lightning are waiting in the Eastern Conference Finals, and the Avalanche look like they're sneaking towards closer towards a uh, Western Conference Finals as well. So. Uh, we'll see what happens there. A couple MLB storylines. The main one I kind of wanted to get to. There is an NFL storyline as well, but the main one I wanted to get to in MLB, Max Scherzer. Max Scherzer is going to mix the next six in the next miss the next. Jesus, I can't talk. Miss the next six to eight weeks with an oblique strain. That's a huge loss for the Mets. Um, they were playing pretty good up until that point, and uh, he was their ace basically, more or less, with the Grom. Um, on the uh, on the IL as well due to his injury that he had before the season started, and now the Mets are going to need some uh, someone to step up on their team, especially in the rotation with Max Scherzer and Jacob Degrom out for the foreseeable future. And uh, we'll see what happens. The Mets right it happens. The uh, the Mets right now they are twenty nine and fifteen as it stands in the NL East. They're leading by eight games, so a comfortable lead, if you will, over the Phillies, who are second place in the NL East. Um, but we'll have to see some people uh, step up. Scherzer has been far and away the best player that they have, but Carlos, or best pitcher they have. Carlos Carrasco has been pretty good for them as well, but we'll have to see Chris Bassett t- step up, Tyler McGill as well, um, and then Ty- Taiwan Walker will have to play a little bit uh, better as well out of the rotation, and we'll have to see if that offense gets a little better as well with Max Scherzer going to... I don't think I don't know if they'll put him on the IL. I don't remember the rules for that. The injured list for baseball is so confusing in a bunch of just circles and... Yeah, baseball in itself, just kind of from a front office standpoint, is very confusing. So we'll, I, I think they have to put Scherzer on the IL to make room for somebody on the 40-man roster, but I'm not 100% sure. It's kind of a weird thing, but I'm pretty sure they do. So Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer now on the IL. And if you're a Mets pitcher, man, ice those, uh, ice those elbows, ice those obliques, ice the groin. That was weird. Ice the groin, you know. Don't get hurt because that's it seems like a curse for the Mets. They, they DeGrom has missed the last few years because of the injury. He's the probably the best pitcher alive on planet Earth right now, and we don't get to see him that much. And I, I love watching DeGrom pitch, so I want him to stay healthy. Scherzer, also one of the best pitchers alive on the planet, got the coolest eyes on the in the game, um, and I want to see him pitch more. And, um, you know, just, you know, ice your stuff. Kids, kids, if you're listening, ice your arm, all right? Ice your arm. Do the do the post game stuff that you got to do recovery, okay? Not just the Gatorade recovery drink, you know. Put some ice on the arms, put some icy hot on the arm, that sort of thing, and do do some recovery. All right, it's probably it's arguably the most important thing you'll do if you're a youngin trying to get into baseball or any sort of sport. Do the recovery, all right? Do the recovery that is necessary. Period, and you'll be a great player. I'm sure of it. Okay, moving on. Uh, the only lone NFL storyline that we really have. Kind of came out, uh, kind of ambushed me on Tuesday, Tuesday morning. Um, the NFL is discussing the future of the Pro Bowl, including a possible elimination of the tackle game. So they might be looking to morph it, if you will. This is from Jeremy Fowler of ESPN. The NFL owners are discussing the future of the Pro Bowl at this week's league meetings. A source confirmed to ESPN after multiple media outlets reported the news. The league has spoken to players and NFL teams and is now exploring alternatives to the week-long Pro Bowl celebration which include the elimination of the traditional tackle game. The source said no vote is needed to approve the change. The NFL, while exploring this uh, with players and television partners, hopes to have a decision this summer. Um, It would be interesting to see. I, I have been, you know, I have been one that has always said, and 
I haven't said it on air, so it doesn't really mean anything that I'm saying this now, but I've, I've told people I've always wanted to see a NFL-style flag football game. What if they just got rid of the tackle and just let these guys go insane with a flag football game? Can you imagine just seeing, um, you know, whoever's at the Pro Bowl this year, Russell Wilson throw or not Russell, well, yeah, yeah, Russell Wilson throw it to uh, Tyree Kill in a flag football-style matchup. And then Tyreek Hill, without all the pads on, we get to see him go as fast as he can and basically just run by everybody while he's dodging, you know, people trying to grab at his flag. I just think it would be fun to watch a flag football style game. These guys get to take the pads off and that sort of thing and just kind of jump as high as they can, run as fast as they can, that sort of thing. You don't need all the offensive linemen out there basically doing nothing, which is what they do in the tackle game because nobody's trying to sack the quarterback in the Pro Bowl you don't need all the offensive linemen, that sort of thing. And even the offensive linemen can get into the fun. You know, throw an offensive lineman out there, throw him at running back and see if anybody can stop him. Make it a flag football game. It would be fun. Okay, I'm telling you, I've got all the right ideas, NFL. Just do it, all right? Just do what I'm telling you. You don't even have to take payment. All right, I don't even have, I'm not even going to invoice you for this idea. Just make it a flag football game and we'll see what happens. And if there is a flag football come, a flag football game coming for the Pro Bowl, if that happens, I'm coming back to this podcast and I'm saying I told you so. All right, listeners, just... Mark it May 24th, the day of recording this. I'm posting it on May 24th. Mark it as the day that we called the NFL Pro Bowl changing to a flag football game. Mark it. That's what's going to happen. That, I believe, is going to wrap up the show today, though. I think we got in a decent amount of storylines. We had a lot of fun with the Nick Saban stuff and the, and the you know, that was mainly the, the big story, I guess, of the past week. And then, you know, NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs are still going on. So still a lot of fun sports going on. So make sure you pay attention to it. And um, hey, Memorial Day weekend's coming up. So have a happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you have a good uh, long weekend if you're just, you know, not celebrating Memorial Day weekend or Memorial Day, but you know what I mean. Um, getting the day off for Memorial Day, if you will. So I hope you have a good Memorial Day weekend, a good long three-day weekend. Um, you have been listening to the Weekend Sports Rep Podcast. Oh, really quickly, please remember to rate and subscribe. That really uh, helps me out over on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, whatever. Remember to rate and subscribe. That helps me on the uh Helps me on the old trending tab and that sort of thing. And um, I can kind of get this this uh, podcast out to ears from, you know, not in the Sheridan area and that sort of thing. So make sure you do that on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please rate and subscribe. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, you've been listening to the Weekend Sports Wrap Podcast. I have been your host, James Timberlake.